Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now my guest this week is Professor Simon Heffer, perhaps best known to you as one of our most prominent political commentators and journalists. He's also the author of numerous books, including critically acclaimed biography of Enoch Powell, like the Roman. His latest book is this, Staring at God, Britain in the Great War. It's the third volume in a series he's writing, which takes British history from the Victorian age up to the Second World War. He currently teaches modern British history at the University of Buckingham. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you for asking me. Thank you. Um, Why this title, Staring at God? I was in the Bodleian Library at Oxford about three years ago reading Mrs. Asquith's diaries, which are a brilliant account of what went on in Cabinet, in an era before Cabinet minutes were kept. We're very lucky in regards to this because Asquith told his wife everything. He also told his would-be mistress, Venetia Stanley, everything until May 1915. So up until then, we've got double accounts of, uh, of what went on at cabinet meetings. So we can see the political process in, in the conversion of our country from a liberal democracy into a state that was equipped for total war. But um, when the war broke out uh, in August 1914, Mrs. Asquith asked Kitchener um, whether it would be over by Christmas. She believed it would. Mm. And Kitchener said, no, it's going to last three years. And she didn't believe him. And by the end of October, She's had a number of her friends' sons who've been killed or wounded um, on the Western Front, and she's been beginning to despair. She sees, she hears about the two armies entrenching on the Western Front, which they are after the Battle of the Marne, and she realises it's going on for a long time and that Kitchener was right. And on the 26th of October 1914, she writes in her diary that um, Britain had been going through a terrible period before the war with um, massive industrial unrest, Um, unrest over suffragettes, unrest over Ireland, uh, and a constitutional crisis in the House of Lords that had divided London society. And she says in that regard, this war has caught us at our worst. And then she goes on to say, and now uh, all our finest young men are being blown to pieces by shrapnel in Flanders, and we are left here staring at God. And when I read that phrase, I thought, well, that's the title of my book. Because it conveys that sense of almost unprecedented hopelessness and a sort of foreboding of an apocalypse that I think had descended on British society by the the late autumn of 1914. Uh, This isn't a military history, is it? No. It's a a history about what it was like for us, what it was like for the people at home, and how society was transformed by this four and a bit years of war, um, particularly about how it affected women, who, of course came into the labour force in vast quantities. We wouldn't have won the war without them. Uh, They went into munitions factories, notably. They went onto the land, the Women's Land Army, which we all think of as a Second World War creation, started in the First War. And they also started to replace men in jobs all over society. They became bus conductresses. They they worked on the railways and every job apart from actually driving trains, which I'm sure they could have done perfectly well if they'd been given the chance. And they were... um, given the vote as a result of this massive contribution they made to the war effort. But it's the end of the, of the deferential society as well. It's um, a lot of those women who go into factories come out of domestic service. And the idea of the class system starts to become more flexible. And politics changes. The old Victorian um, idea of political service 
changes. And Lloyd George, when he becomes Prime Minister at the end of 1916, brings in what were called um, men of push and go, mm. who are basically spivs, but they're spivs who know how to run a business. Mm. And he brings them in to get government run more efficiently. There's a very fundamental uh, point you make, and so I think is, I've, I found very interesting, which is that you said, it, you said that during this period, there was a transformation, but that it was actually one wherein the state became hugely dominant in people's lives. I think most people would probably think that was the Second World War where that happened. Well, the Second World War was modelled on the first in that oh, respect. Right. Uh, and everything that happened in 19, the winter of 1939-40 was, was based more or less on how the government, in a slightly slower way, had adapted from being the liberal society to being a society equipped for total war mm. between about 1914 and 1916. And the first emanation of this is the Defence of the Realm Acts, which are passed on the 6th of August 1914. And this controls what people can say, what can be written in the newspapers, where some people can go. It, it's, um, if you are uh, deemed to be a, an enemy alien, you can't go within so many miles of the coast or in case you signal to a submarine or so many miles of an army camp. And um, the, de the Defence of the Realm Act is amended a number of times until 1918, and it puts more and more restrictions on on what people can do. Mm. You know, we have the licensing laws in, in pubs for the first time because many working class people are having to work 80 hours a week in factories to keep up the supply of munitions and other yeah. materials needed for war. They've suddenly got lots of money in their pockets right. and they're spending it on drink. And uh, I mean, a, a team from the Royal Navy go up to Glasgow to the shipyards in the spring of 1915 and find that some shipbuilds at a time when the Royal Navy desperately needs more ships uh, are drunk two days of the week, They're only working three days a week, because they are so paralytically drunk and, and overhung by the amount they're drinking. And so the government brings in restrictions not only on when pubs can open, but it becomes, for example, illegal to buy somebody else a drink. Uh, it's the law against what they call treating. Yeah. So uh, the, the state does start to intervene. But the most profound way in which it intervenes is it tells men of a certain age that they must serve their country. Mm. And it presses women, doesn't compel them, but it presses women also to go into the service of their country. So that would bring about a psychological difference? Would it, would it also mean that people started to see the government as a thing that should do things for them, perhaps in a way they didn't before? I think there was an element of that before the war, because don't forget from 1910 or so, Churchill, who's then president of the Board of Trade, um, introduces labour exchanges. Mm -hmm. And in 1911, Lloyd George introduces the national insurance principle. So there is a sense already before the war that the state is starting to uh, provide for individuals who can't provide for themselves. The old age pension has come in mm -hmm. in 1909. It's very ungenerous. It's five shillings a week, mm -hmm. which even in those days was a pittance. And you don't qualify for it until you're 70. Now, when you bear in mind that the average uh, age of a, of a man at death was 48 mm. in uh, 1909. The government's not spending very much money on this. But the principle has been established by this same liberal government that the, being that we are a rich and advanced society, we will no longer tolerate the extremes of poverty that were seen, say, in Victorian England. Mm. Um, but yes, once the state starts getting more and more involved, there is inevitably a section of society that is very happy to have its life more and more run by the state. 
the the volume before this is called the Age of Decadence, isn't it? That's right. It takes up to nineteen forty. Do you do you agree with the the idea? I remember I was taught at university when I did history um, that in an odd way the First World War sort of prevented what could have been quite a social revolution happening in Britain. That, you know, there was this idea that things were trade union activity, what was happening at that time. On a social level, things were becoming rather dangerous, as it were. There was certainly a rise of the labour movement. Uh, what Ramsay MacDonald called the Great Unrest, which lasted from 1910 to 1913, yes. certainly made certainly an emanation of trade union power. Mm. However, trade unions didn't seem to gain very much by it. It was an era of very long strikes, with people being starved back to work. So when you start starving people back to work, eventually perhaps what might have happened is what happened in Russia, and there would have been some form of revolution. Mm. Um, and I think that possibly a revolution was prevented by the war, not least because the governing class, and I'm thinking of everyone from the king downwards in the operations of society, was seen to be playing a very full part in saving the country. Yeah. Uh, so there wasn't a, a revolutionary mood, didn't get up. I wonder how quickly women would have been emancipated mm. without the war. Um, Asquith, who was, although a prime minister who was very interested in women in that he spent a lot of his time with them, uh, and liked intelligent women, peculiarly was deeply opposed to women's suffrage. Yet he must have seen that most women that he knew were easily intelligent enough mm. to exercise a vote as much as any man was. Uh, and yet he gets up in the House of Commons in October 1916 and says, I've now realised given the contribution women have made to the war, given that they are staffing our munitions factories, they're bringing our harvest in, um, that without them we wouldn't have been able to, to fight the war this long, mm. or as well as we have, and therefore they must have the vote. And I just wonder whether they would have got the vote by 1916 if there hadn't been a war. The other uh, unknown is Ireland. Ireland was, yeah. was due to get home rule in the, uh, in the autumn of 1914, there was a huge row about whether Ulster should be included or not. And, you know, for the first four weeks after the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, there's no mention in the House of Commons about the situation in Europe. There's an enormous obsession with the fact that because the Home Rule book is about to go on the statute, or the Home Rule Act is about to go on the statute book, that uh, there might be uh, a, a civil war in Ireland. Mm. And a civil war that spills over here because of the big Irish communities in places like Glasgow, Liverpool, Birmingham and London. And uh, it's only when uh, it becomes absolutely obvious that a war is about to break out on the continent that we stop obsessing with Ireland and start obsessing with Europe. But then of course we have the Easter Rising, of which we make a complete mess mm. in terms of how we handle it. And uh, as soon as the war is over with Germany, we have a war with the Irish until the end of 1921. Mm. Um, there was something that really, sort of really <coughs> rather sort of uh, came out of me when I was looking at the, at the book. And uh, it's a, just a quote you say about, if you're looking at the transformation of Britain in this book, uh, you say it went from an almost arrogant certainty to a wounded insecurity. Um, and I just wondered, Simon, do you, do you think that that is, that wounded insecurity, notwithstanding the Second World War, do you think that's something that's persisted? I mean, was, was it start, did, did basically the First World War start it and, and have we come out of it ever? 
I think it's Roots Lie in the Boer War, which we right. thought we were going to win again in a few months, and it took us two and, two and three quarter years. I mean, we were a proper army, allegedly, fighting against a bunch of Dutch farmers with mm. armed with shotguns, mm. and they held us up from October 1899 to May, 2000, May 1902. And we were so concerned by our performance in the Boer War that we had a major inquiry into the army led by Lord Isha, and it was decided, for example, that um, many of our young men were so grotesquely undernourished and unfit mm. that they'd had to be turned down for the army. And if we faced a challenge nearer to home, we had to have a fitter and healthier population. And so uh, that's when, in the 1902 Education Act, physical education is put on the syllabus. And a primitive form of welfareism begins to ensure that children are being properly fed. I mean, allowances start to be paid in Edwardian England to families who say they can't afford to feed their children. So we, are, we begin to realise that the great uh, sense of invulnerability that pervaded the Victorian sense of empire was an illusion. Um, by the end of the Great War, we realised that, uh, or those who are honest with themselves realised that we only won it partly because two million Americans turned up mm. in uh, the summer of 1918 and mm -hmm. continued the fight that we'd almost exhausted ourselves having. And we won it because of the success of our naval blockade of Germany that had starved Germany more or less into submission. And it's why when the Americans arrive and start driving the Germans back, rather than just retreat, they surrender in their droves yeah. because their morale is, is collapsed. And so we realized that it wasn't a war that we managed to win on our own. It was a war that we won because of the late intervention of a major associate. They, the Americans didn't call themselves allies. Has this lasted through until today? I think what has lasted <coughs> through until today is a sense of self-flagellation about mm. our country and about our values. And uh, you see this in the Brexit debate. Yeah. Um, the number of people who say, well, we're not capable of ruling ourselves. We can't survive without Europe helping us. Uh, and there is this instinct that uh, we're just not up to it. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn's entire political philosophy seems to be based on the fact that we are a loathsome country that has all the wrong values and can't possibly maintain itself, uh, which is why he finds it so easy, I think, to associate with uh, this country's natural enemies. Mm. Uh, so I was going to, about to ask you, actually, about what Brexit has, coming right up to date, what it's kind of revealed about changes in British society. You, you've actually mentioned something there which is actually a continuum, really, isn't it? It's, it's basically this distaste for one's own nationality that you get on the left. Yes, and I think the other thing about Brexit, and I've, I've thought this since the campaign of 2016, which I was very active on the Brexit side, uh, is that w there was a large number of people in this country whose voices had been ignored mm. for decades. And on the European question, no choice had been offered by any serious party at a general election, really since 1983. Mm when Michael Foote uh, still campaigned on a, a programme of taking us out, and no one in his or her right mind would have voted for Michael Foote in '83 purely because he wanted to take Britain out of the, of the European community, as it then was. But um, I feel what Brexit has shown is that in a representative democracy, people become very alert quite quickly to when they're not being represented. And that's why the idea of a referendum was embraced so wholeheartedly why it was such a massively large turnout, the biggest vote of any sort in our country ever. And 
you know, why it has been so difficult for some of us to accept the, uh, or, to, or, or to tolerate, I should say, the determination of a few people on the Remain side to ignore the result and to carry on as if nothing had happened. I mean, you said you campaigned and you've been a Eurosceptic for years. Um, it's my perception, really, that when one had debates about Europe, the opposition, people who were pro-EU, would tend to be kind of reasonable and say, well, there, there are real problems with it, but on balance we want to be in. What it seemed to be the case with, with this referendum c- campaign and after that is there seemed to be a new group of people who were quite zealous about the EU. They, they, they're not asking for reform. They don't see anything wrong with it at all. That seemed to be to be quite new to me. Yes, I mean, I remember realising um, just after the vote, uh, I went to high table at my college at Cambridge and there was a very senior retired civil servant there who was just happily telling everybody, don't worry, this won't happen, we'll ensure it doesn't happen. And it seemed to come for nothing with him that 17.4 million people had just Mm. said, look, actually, we don't think it works. We don't think it's benefiting our country. Mm. And, I mean, to me, um, I slightly deplored the 350 million thing on the side of the bus. Mm. I didn't campaign for Vote Leave, I campaigned for Leave.eu. Because to me it wasn't about saving money, even if that happens incidentally. To me it was simply getting back control of my country Mm. and being able to vote. When I voted in an election, to be able to vote for people who could actually change things that profoundly affected my country. And it wasn't all about immigration, but when you've got a position where someone who is a very serious criminal, but who has no outstanding warrants against him, but who has a record of criminality, can turn up at Dover and say, I'm, I'm coming in whether you like it or not. Mm. Whereas if you try and get into America, even with a minor drugs mm. conviction, they will kick you out. Mm. Never mind if you're a rapist or an armed robber or a murderer or done anything really vile like that. I thought, well, what sort of... We are taking leave of our senses to allow this. I'm very much in favour of immigration. I'm very much in favour of anybody who can do something useful for our country coming here. But what I'm also in favour of is regulating uh, the, the people who do come in. And we must retain the right to do that. And it's an obvious manifestation of sovereignty. But when things happen in our country, particularly of an economic nature, that you can't change by changing the government, it seems to me that's a fundamental failure of democracy. And we had had that again and again with the European Union over the last 30 years, and I just felt the time had come to stop that. Have you been surprised by the resistance to Brexit over the past three and a half years? Uh, you know, there is this sort of view now that actually, you know, Britain was slightly different. It, it, w- it, it would sort of carry through with the result. and then, But a lot of people saying, well, actually, maybe... Are we so different? The way things are going, you know, everyone is doing everything to thwart it. Were you surprised by the level of resistance or or not? I wasn't surprised by its level. I was surprised by its promiscuity, Mm. if you like. I was surprised there were so many people Mm. who were prepared to stick up two fingers to democracy. Mm. You know, you either believe in democracy or you don't. Mm. Um, It was not a howlingly right-wing prime minister who introduced this referendum, it was David Cameron. Mm. And it had the support of almost everyone in the House of Commons. More than 500 MPs voted to have this referendum. So if you're going to have that level of parliamentary support, 
then I think it is incumbent, particularly on the parliamentarians who voted to have the referendum, uh, that its result is respected. Mm. And I was horrified. I know that if we had lost, I had this conversation with my children, uh, both of my sons, uh, despite having gone to very good universities and very good schools, um, uh, are Brexiteers. I know the popular perception is that only very stupid working class people are Brexiteers, which is an offensive mm. and highly wrong uh, mm. assumption to make, uh, both about them and about everybody else. Um, but uh, they said to me, well, what do we do, Dad, if we've lost? And I said, well, I don't do anything, but in 30 years' time, you might want to ask the question again. Actually, on reflection, I don't think that the EU will exist in 30 years' time, not in its present form anyway. And uh, so I thought that you know, we all understood that once the answer was given, that was the answer, and we just mm -hmm. carried on and, and waited for another opportunity many years hence to say effectively, as the Liberal Democrats are doing in this campaign, yeah. well, you know, let's pretend it never happened, let's revoke Article 50 and stick up two fingers to 17.4 million people, um, I think is an outrageous mm. affront to democracy. And how a Liberal Democrat can call him or herself a Liberal Democrat, either a Liberal or a Democrat, with that level of contempt mm. for the democratic process is beyond me. And it's a question that is not being sufficiently asked in this election campaign. I agree, it's extraordinary. But it's got the feeling of something that they will look back and seriously regret, you know. Not I, that I care what happens to them, but... Yeah, I hope you're right. I hope you're right. I worry about that, though. I think that some of these people are so brainwashed themselves. Mm. And, you know, it's, it's like you, you, you come across people in the 1950s and 60s who were members of uh, the most appalling regimes uh, in the 30s and 40s, um, whether the communist regime of Stalin or the fascist regime of Hitler, and uh, they just pine for the old days. And I'm afraid that there'll be some people who will continue mm. to pine for the old days uh, in the Liberal Party because they think they're absolutely right to ignore democracy. They can't see how contemptible it is to treat people in that way. Uh, you said quite recently, uh, Simon, that you thought we would end up with um, a, possibly a minority government. Um, is that how you think things are going to pan out now? As of today, what are we, four weeks away from mm. the election? Uh, yes, I do. I know that things are allegedly going to change because Farage has stood down 317 candidates. But he's only stood down candidates in seats that the Conservatives already held, or technically already held. Um, he hasn't stood them down, uh, unless things change at the last minute, in seats that they've got to win. And that will make it very difficult for them, for them to mm. win. I'm also not convinced that they'll hold every seat that they won in, uh, in 2017. I think the Liberal Democrats, despite their pernicious views on democracy, uh, will attract Remainers. Mm. Uh, I mean, they are clearly the lead Remainer party. And if you're in a, a Lib Dem conservative marginal, of which there are, I think, several dozen, and you are a Remainer, you're going to vote for the Lib Dems. And that could well change things, even without a Brexit candidate. So yes, I, I think the Conservatives will be the largest party, uh, and they will probably get very close to having enough to form a government. But of course, they won't have a DUP mm. to rely on. I just can't see where the 326 seats are that they're going to win to get an absolute majority. I may be wrong, but just looking at the lists now, I think they're just going to fall short. Um, I expect the Liberal Democrats to do well, I expect the SNP to do well, and Corbyn to lose seats that he held mm. last time. What's your impression <coughs> been of Boris Johnson as Prime Minister? 
Uh, I'm very sorry that he is Prime Minister. I don't think he's morally fit to be Prime Minister. Right. I don't think he has the character uh, to do it. Mm. And I would have preferred almost anybody else, to be honest with you. Based on what, Simon? Well, well I used to work with him. Uh, he worked for me, actually, at the Telegraph in the 1990s. And uh, I wasn't impressed with his, uh, his lack of professionalism there, which I also saw when I was back at the Telegraph um, as an executive in the 2000s. And I used to edit the paper on Sundays and he'd filed his column at eight o'clock at night, irrespective of the inconvenience it caused almost everybody there trying to produce a newspaper for the next day. He was deeply unprofessional. I wasn't impressed by the fact he had, I think, eight deputy mayors and he was mayor of London. Um, I'm not remotely censorious of his private life, that's a matter for him. But I think he has to bear in mind that many people in this country will be censorious of his private life, and particularly women I talk to, who feel that he, the way he treats women is, um, shall we say, slightly less than gallant uh, and honourable. Uh, I just don't think he has the, um, the character. I use that's a very old-fashioned word, but I think it's the best word. I don't think he has the character to be a successful leader. And um, as far as I'm concerned, the sooner the Conservative Party comes to its senses on that uh, point and finds somebody with a little bit more integrity to be the leader, the better. Have you never considered actually being uh, active in politics, actually standing yourself for anything? I did in my 20s, but um, I, you know, Mrs Thatcher was Prime Minister. This is back in the 1980s. Mm. And uh, I realised, first of all, that... I admired her almost unreservedly, and I realised that she wasn't going on forever. Uh, I wasn't sure what would follow her. And I very quickly realised when she did leave that I would have found it impossible to tow a party line under John Major, or indeed probably under anybody who's led the Conservative Party since. Um, I don't know that I'm a Conservative, actually. I think if somebody asked me to specify my politics, I would say I was a Gladstonian liberal. Right. And I don't think that the basic tenets of Gladstonian liberalism, which Mrs Thatcher actually adhered to, and actually mm. also Enoch Powell, who, as you mentioned, mm. I wrote a book on, uh, I don't think that either of them was a Conservative in the strict sense of the word, even though Enoch always said that he was born a Tory. Mm. Uh, I think Enoch, like Mrs Thatcher, was born a Gladstonian liberal. Uh, and I think I was too. And there are elements of what the Conservative Party has done in under every other leader since um, since Mrs Thatcher went that I would have found very hard to put up with. And I mean, certainly when you get to the Cameron years, I felt that his own connection with conservatism was pretty nebulous. Generally, I mean, you've been writing about 35 years now about yeah, politics. On for that. Would you say that uh, politics, politicians, should we say, are less interesting now than maybe when you started? I think there's a lot more lobby fodder now. I mm. think there are a lot more people who will simply do as they're told and vote for anything the Conservative Party wants them to vote for. Um, and I think that was slightly different in the 1980s. Mm. Of course, the, the first, uh, well, all three uh, elections that Mrs Thatcher won left her with pretty hefty majorities. And so there was room for, if you like, safe dissent mm. um, in a way that there perhaps hasn't been in, in uh, later Conservative administrations or Conservative-led administrations. But uh, I think there are more people now who will put their career before their principles.
Uh, they've always been there, of course, but I think they're probably a higher proportion of them now than they were 30 years ago. I think, you know, if you take, say, Enoch Powell, uh, you know, whatever one's views on, on his beliefs and views, there's no, you know, question of his academic calibre. Um, but I suspect people of that calibre would not be attracted to be politicians anymore, maybe. I mean, there are, there are some very bright people in Parliament. Mm. Um, equally, there are a lot of people in Parliament who are there because um, they don't seem to be able to get another job anywhere else. Mm. Uh, what Powell also had, and Mrs Thatcher had it too, was uh, a genuine ethic of public service. Mm. Uh, I mean, many people have called Enoch Powell the Tribune of the People, and Mrs Thatcher was to an extent as well. And I think we lack that sort of person in politics today. There are interesting people in politics on both sides. I mean, in the last parliament, um, Frank Field, mm. uh, John Redwood, mm. uh, Jesse Norman. Mm. Um, I mean, there are people in the last Tory party I didn't agree with in that they took a very different view from me on Brexit. But they were serious, high-minded people. Mm, mm. And, uh, I mean, Dominic Grieve is one. David Gork, actually, is another. Um, I don't blame David Gork for telling people not to vote for Boris Johnson. He's actually sticking up for his principles, and he resigned in a very principled way. And um, I, I can see why he's doing it. Um, I mean, that's the other thing that I find so regrettable about politics today, is it's become so unpleasant. We can't have open and... and reasonable disagreements with people. Mm. This I blame on, on social media. You've got so many MPs have said mm. to me in the last couple of years, well, I'm getting out of politics, I can't stand the abuse anymore. Mm. And you know, people hiding behind Twitter handles, um, sending abuse to politicians. I know that you know, people in my trade are often accused of being rude about politicians, but at least it's in the public prints and my name is on it. And if anybody wants to disagree with me, they know with whom to come and disagree. If you make up a pseudonym and you send it off on Twitter, then you're, it's a cowardly way to uh, attack anybody. And I so deplore the degeneration of argument and debate. I've got many friends who are Remainers. I've got many friends in other political parties than the ones I might vote for. Uh, and we've always managed to have entirely cordial relations. Yes. I've always respected their point of view, even if I don't agree with it. Uh, although I say I struggle to respect a point of view that says we should overrun, override the referendum result. And I just wish we could get back to uh, um, an honourable sense of being able to disagree with each other without coming to blows. Do you, do you partake in any social media yourself? Do no. You do? no, none whatsoever. Mm. Um, I haven't got time. Mm. I have, you know, I, I have the good fortune to write for the Telegraph newspapers. If anybody doesn't like what I write there, they can email me, and I will almost always, unless I'm completely overwhelmed with work, do them the courtesy of a reply. Uh, and uh, I'm always glad when people do write to me. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, I just can't see the point of social media, really. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's a terribly self-regarding thing to do. Mm -hmm. uh, why should people care what I think about anything? Why should they have that inflicted on them? If they want to buy the newspaper I write for and read me in there, they've made a decision to part with their money. Uh, and that's a decision I entirely applaud. Um, but just to have me turning up on their mobile phone uninvited, as it were, I think is, is, uh, is the highest uh, form of vanity. Just to fi uh, finish, Simon, it's, been, it's wonderful to, to talk to you. Uh, the book, again, Staring at God. Um, I, I just wanted to ask you one thing, given that it's about the Great War. We've just had Remembrance. Uh, we recently had David 
Starkey on the program, but he recently deplored what remembrance has now come. He said it was, a, I think, a crazy religious ritual. Do you agree with that or not? I don't want to compel anybody to wear a poppy or go to a war memorial or to the cenotaph on the day uh, of remembrance, but I hope before they do decide not to do that, they look at their own families mm -hmm. and they look back at the members of their own family who almost certainly took a part in both world wars and wonder whether it was something of such significance that their ancestors did or their forebears did that it doesn't, it is unbecoming of them not to recognize it in some way. I had uh, a number of members of my family who fought in both world wars, some of whom died in those wars. And when I, uh, when I wear my poppy and I fall silent for two minutes on Remembrance Sunday and indeed on the 11th of November, if it's not the same day, uh, I am thinking of them. Mm. Uh, I've got two sons of military age and I think, aren't I fortunate, mm. and, uh, isn't my wife fortunate that our children uh, are not in a position where they've got to go and fight uh, for our country and possibly get killed in the way that some members of our family did. Mm. Um, my wife had a great uncle killed in the Great War on the Western Front on the Battle of the Somme and on the exact centenary of his death. Luckily he has a marked grave. Uh, we went to his grave and paid our respects and although he was no blood relation of mine I was intensely moved. My wife and son who are related to him by blood were deeply moved by, by this and I respect David Starkey enormously. He's a very fine historian uh, and he's also a controversialist. I suppose I am too, in a way. Mm. But I think you've got to pick your controversies. Mm. Um, I don't feel that I'm under any fascist obligation to wear a poppy. I do it because uh, I've thought about the past. I've thought about why you and I are not sitting here speaking German mm. uh, with a member of the government in the room to ensure that we don't veer off anything that, or onto anything that might be a bit difficult. And so I'm, I'm incredibly grateful to those who made that sacrifice mm. both over 100 years ago and 80 years ago to, um, to fight that we could grow up in a free country. And uh, I'll never forget that. Well, thank you very much for coming. Uh, thank you for asking. It's great. Um, thank you for watching again. <coughs> Please remember to subscribe, won't you? And we'll see you next time. Thank you very much.